Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. The state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at a historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laughing as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly boring since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group Incorporated. PNC Bank National Association, member FDIC. Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stuff I Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio. Um, and as promised, here's our part two of our two-part episode on Leah Thomas's recently published book, The Intersectional Environmentalist. Uh, if you haven't checked it out, our, our part one on it, go do so. And also, if you haven't checked out the book, go do so. Um, yes. Because it's it's really, really excellently written. It's so important. And it's such a good look at why the issues of the environment have to be intersectional. We have to look at them through an intersectional lens. So it's just can't recommend it enough. Um, and yeah, this is as we were publishing this, this is Earth Day, Earth Month, perhaps. And, and uh, you might notice that Samantha sounds a little different. Uh, the Earth the and I Earth, are one. <laughs> The Sorry. Earth is not happy with you, perhaps. <laughs> uh, it has decided to, uh, yes, inundate me with all of the particles of the Earth, as ha- mm-hmm. happens in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, and yes, everything is watering mm-hmm. out of my That's face. Fun. You're welcome. It's <laughs> a fun description. <laughs> That's the best way I can do it. <laughs> and it's not COVID. I have taken three tests. <laughs> and they've all said no. So either it's yeah. lying to me, which I know can't happen, but I do have my sense of taste and smell still, as yeah. well as the fact that I don't really have a sore throat. So I guess that's that's good news. I think it's, I mean, yes, I would say it falls under the category yes. of good news. Yes. Yes, but it's definitely a high allergy city, uh, Atlanta. Everything is yellow. Everything's yellow. The dogwood smell is out. Uh, full force. I forget about it every spring, and then I go outside and oh, like, yeah. oh. it slaps you in the face, right? Uh-huh, yeah. Literally, like, hey, we're oh, here. Oh my goodness! <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh yes, I forgot about this. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, with that being said, let's jump right in. But again, if you haven't listened to part one, uh, we suggest you do that first because we covered a lot of the foundation from the book in that one. 
For this one, we're going to start with environmental justice, uh, that theme. Here's a quote. What's often left out of environmental history and education is how people of color have always been at the forefront of community advocacy. Even if they weren't as present at the first Earth Day or aren't as often seen summiting mountains in a national park, Black, Indigenous, and other communities of color are a part of environmental history in other very important ways. Whether it's activism for Indigenous sovereignty or Black and brown communities confronting environmental hazards, there's a rich history of BIPOC environmental advocacy and a centuries-long legacy of fighting for justice. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency defines environmental justice as, quote, the fair treatment and meaningful involvement of all people regardless of race, color, national origin, or income with respect to the development, implementation, and enforcement of environmental laws, regulations, and policies. The term environmental justice began to emerge in the 1980s after both the civil rights and Earth Day movements. Soon, environmental justice became a movement of its own. We can turn to the mother and father of environmental justice to get started, Hazel M. Johnson and Dr. Robert Bullard. Hazel M. Johnson was a Black environmental activist from the south side of Chicago, Illinois. After her husband passed away from lung cancer at the young age of 41, Johnson began to suspect an environmental connection. In a short span of time following her husband's death in 1969, several others within her community, Altgeld Gardens, died from lung cancer. When a news report announced that Altgeld Gardens had some of the highest rates of cancer in all of Chicago, Johnson began to ask herself, why would Altgeld Gardens, a community initially built for Black World War II veterans, have such abnormally high instances of cancer? When investigating the differences between primarily Black Altgeld Gardens and other Chicago neighborhoods, Johnson found that Altgeld Gardens bore a tremendously disproportionate proportionate environmental hazard burden. So that's a really long quote, but uh, I think it's so important when we're talking about, because in the part one, we talked about education and how it doesn't showcase people of color, even though they've been doing this work and then not seeing themselves in that space. And this kind of erasure of the people who have been at the forefront of these movements. And I think this is something, unfortunately, we've seen multiple times with these like environmental hazards in communities that are less well-off, um, people of color, all kinds of things. And that's part of that intersectionality we're talking about and why it's so important in this conversation. Right. And I think it's very interesting that we talk about, yeah, at the beginning of the first Earth Day did not really include uh, those marginalized communities. And it's seemingly ironic, I think, because those Earth Day happenings was such a posh idea. And so many uh, upper-class white people came in with like, yeah, let me have the t-shirt that says I love the earth and hug the earth. And, you know, the jokes about tree hugging and all of that came about and became almost a joke when the marginalized communities were so affected that it was a violence within that community, actually killing people, actually uh, making people sick and no one really recognizing it. And because when you are in the higher uh, class of people, I'll put that in quotes, meaning this as a derogatory way, um, it was far-fetched for them because they didn't see the imminent impact of it as where those that are marginalized and lower socioeconomic class were truly affected on a daily basis, whether it's because they got sick, because they didn't have the water, they were getting land taken away from them, any of those things that they have been on the forefront, but looking like they're radicals because they're trying to stop something immediately. If not, people are going to die. People of their community were dying. Um, and it it's this example 
example is a prime example of those dying in, like immediate at that point in time. And it wasn't something in the far future. We need to make it better for our kids. This whole thing, which is true, we do. We do need to make it better for the future generations, but it's killing people now. And they there's this conversation of ignoring that. Um, the fact that Secretary of State Deb Holland was so fiercely opposed by those making money off of those marginalized communities who were killing off the earth and killing off the people of uh, that land says a lot about what we see as valuable and what we see, who we see as dismissible. And that, again, is why when we talk about intersectional environmentalism, this is not about just looking cute and doing a trend. This is trying Mm -hmm. to save their own lives. Yeah. And I think that's a great point that you bring up because I feel like a lot of times these conversations around um, sustainability, it's easier for people to be like, well, that's, you know, I don't have to deal with it now. That might happen in the future. It might not, but it is happening now and people are dying from it now and they are being hurt from it right now. And they have been for a long time. And then just something I was thinking about the other day, uh, because there's just been a struggle with, you know, mental health for a lot of people during this pandemic. Um, And I had a friend who we were talking about it. And it just occurred to me that some of the, like, you know, we talked about this in a recent episode. Some of the advice you hear all the time um, is so privileged without seeming to realize that it is. But one of them is like, you know, go outside, go for a walk. And I'm like, that's great if you have access to like a a safe place to walk, whether it's like sidewalks or, yeah, just general safety and walking about. But not everybody has that. (laughs) Right, right. There are so many Mm -hmm. things that are layered that seem so easy for those who are privileged. And again, Mm -hmm. this is the comment about being privileged. And I I think that's an even bigger conversation when we talk about this uh, whole environmental doomism that's happening right now. And uh, just as a reminder, people have been living in this doom idea, but they've been pushing and they've been trying to make a difference. Um, When we talk about, like Keystone is a prime example because it actually got some traction um, because we know they're still protesting in that Mm -hmm. area. We know it's still happening. We know people were being um, unfairly, unjustly arrested and pushed out. And it's a constant conversation. And then it's become sensationalized in those uh, conspiracy theory types of movies that become entertainment. And so therefore becomes fictionalized. And I hate that. I hate that this is what's happening. Mm-hmm. But also trying to bring awareness. It's just this, this fine line. But the fact of the matter is uh, when we have privileged people saying, oh, no, it's over. Just quit. That means you're not truly affected. If you really think you can quit, then you've not yeah. been truly affected and you need to do, we need to do more. And I say, mm-hmm. not, not you, we. We need to do more because that type of attitude already puts those people who could actually make some help and make some change and showing, again, their privilege that they can quit. Mm. Yeah, exactly. But moving on, she continues on saying, while some may have overlooked the increased placement of toxic waste facilities in Black communities and deemed the occurrence coincidental, Johnson fought her entire career to prove that it was intentional. All across the United States, Black and low-income communities were plagued with environmental hazards that impact the health of residents and often resulted in illness, worsened quality of life, and death. Johnson fought for legislators and community members to recognize the racism at play and its serious consequences on health and the environment. She said, quote, for so long, environmental activism has been primarily a white middle class issue far removed from the daily reality of inner city life. 
Johnson told the Chicago Tribune in 1955. It's all very well to embrace saving the rainforest and conserving endangered animal species, but such global initiatives don't even begin to impact communities inhabited by people of color. And yeah, that's exactly what we're talking about. This whole idea that it's a far-removed uh ideal situation as if something it's not really happening it shows your privilege that you don't understand that it's happening right here when you look at the drinking water when you talk about what's accessible what's not accessible when you talk about air quality and why that is a danger and yeah who is who is doing the runoffs in what area so when we see big industries doing runoffs into highly uh, urban populations you're like mm, yeah that is absolutely affecting them and no one's actually testing it and as we know, as many administrations before, even this administrations, they're overlooking that to make the money, which is such a BS way of being. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to, I'm trying to make this family friendly. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we strive for. That's what we strive for. Yeah, yeah, and I think that um, there are a lot of. Uh, as we said in, in uh, part one, one of the things that I love so much about this book is it provides resources and like other things to look up um, after after you've read it and like things to educate yourself on and ways you can be active in this field. But I also like uh, there's chapter like near the end and we're going to talk about it a little bit later, but there's sort of this like, yes, these big companies are doing this and it can feel like you don't have any impact, but here are industries where you can. And like one was fast fashion and, and stuff like that. And sort of being aware of um, all that goes into those things. And again, there's still an accessibility issue and price point issue with all of this stuff. But I appreciated that. That's mm-hmm. okay. Mm-hmm. I know now I'm armed with more intelligence, more knowledge. <laughs> more knowledge. Uh, yes, yes, which we love. Here's another quote. Shortly after Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. spoke to the Memphis sanitation strikers in 1968, he was assassinated. This was a national tragedy, and it was also a major setback for environmental justice. Just as civil rights activists had begun to speak up against environmental injustices, a beloved leader was lost, followed by several other prominent Black leaders. As many civil rights activists and Black citizens grieved, a largely white environmental movement began to sweep the United States. These environmentalists took note of the tactics used by civil rights protesters like sit-ins and marches and began to use those strategies to spread awareness about conservation, pollution, toxic waste, and more. The movement finally ignited in 1969 when disturbing images of Cleveland, Ohio's Cuyahoga River engulfed in flames yes, a body of water with fire raging on top of it, were published in Time magazine. The United States was shocked and wanted to know more. The river fire, caused by extremely flammable oil, gas, and toxic waste dumped into waterways, was far more anomalous during this time period. But with this one article, the nation came face-to-face with what a world on fire could look like if policies didn't adequately protect the planet. In response, millions took to the streets, protesting and pressuring politicians to implement federal environmental policies. This collective action led to the largest environmental demonstration in history on April 22, 1970, Earth Day, in which 20 million Americans called for a drastic improvement in environmental policy. The first Earth Day was a spectacular feat, with gatherings and activities across the world. However, even though it was inspired by and occurred in close proximity with the civil rights movement and civil rights efforts of Chicano and indigenous activists, 
It was largely white-led and attended, which brings us to the question, what is the impact of having large-scale environmental movements that mostly exclude the voices of the underrepresented and people of color? Yeah, um, again, I just think this is so important, all of this context and history that Thomas provides in this book and how it is such an um, intersectional issue and um, why it is very, very important that it remains that we look at it that way. And um, if you haven't uh, listened to part one or read the book or seen Leah Thomas about online, she did coin the term uh, uh, intersectional environmentalist. So this is like, she is doing the work here. She has been doing the work. Um, and I just think she did such a great job on like tying all of these things together and showing why they're all connected. Right. Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands. Not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly boring since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association member FDIC. And I do love her uh, conversation about excluding the marginalized community, the indigenous and the Chicago uh, community, as well as obviously the black community. Um, and it kind of reminds me of the fact that the young people who have come up and rose in, in, in conversation, you know, we had this whole thing with adult politicians making fun of young activists who were really trying to make an effort. That's a whole different conversation. You're like, why are you demeaning what's happening here? It's a serious conversation. And you're acting like a child by demeaning a child. But <laughs> I digress. But the fact of the matter is that we know Greta Thunberg, she kind of became a symbol for those young people. And that 
the one famous picture that I remember is her and all the activists, and two of the young Black women were cut out, or women of color were cut out of the picture. And I'm like, whoa, that says so much to what is happening here. And I know the other one of the ones that were uh, cut out was Vanessa Nakate, who is now a little more uh, well-known because of that incident, calling them out like, wait, (laughs) I'm here too. Uh, I've been doing the work as well. I don't understand why I just got cut out. But it's very telling of what is being shown and what is being talked about, who is being recognized. I mean, even Flint, Michigan's own activist, Mari Kopany, came about and has been a part of this work as well and still is doing this work. I think she's like 18 now and really pushing forward with the conversations. She raised money to get bottled water because of the water situation that was still going bad. Um, I don't think it's fully fixed even today. And no one's looking at it. And and we barely see mention of her outside of uh, what other activists are talked about too. We follow her and we know she does an amazing job and she is doing that work. But I'm like, you're a kid. Bless your heart that you have to put this on your own shoulder. And now you've become the face of this. And again, had to go under some scrutiny about the fact that she was speaking out about it and that she had to be the one to speak out about it, that she had to do fundraising instead of having the government supply Uh, Mm -hmm. as they should be taking care of their own people. So there's so many conversations about who is the face, who is being recognized, and who is actually being listened to. And the fact that we know uh, Greta, who is an amazing worker, and I don't want to take that away from her, because she's doing amazing work and proud to see it, but she also has the privilege of being supported by her community, her country, and and doing all these things, even though she goes under ridicule from other adults. Uh, But... The fact that she is getting all the accolades when so many others have been there with her, it's seemingly like there's enough roses to give out. There's enough uh, credits to give out. Let's do that. Let's let's Mm -hmm. talk about that and talk about those works as well Mm -hmm. and quit making it seem like it's only privileged white people who are doing this because it's not. It is not. Mm-mm. So uh, we keep going in her book, and she says, although the Earth Day movement led to the creation of the Environmental Protection Agency and the passage of several prominent federal environmental laws like the Clean Air Act or the CAA and the Clean Water Act, it can be argued that these laws do not equally protect all Americans. While primarily white communities in the U.S. saw a 70% reduction in air pollution after the CAA was passed, low-income and Black, Indigenous, Asian, Pacific Islander, and Latinx communities were seemingly left out of the parameters of protection outlined in these laws. In fact, some of the environmental legislations passed in the 1970s directly diverted toxic waste into Black, Brown, and low-income communities. This exclusion and unethical treatment led to the emergence of the environmental justice movement in the 1980s. And that's exactly what I was talking about earlier, how it went from, okay, these industries decided to pull and reroute to here. And no one really seeing where it went, just, oh, it was fixed over here, so I'm going to be quiet. Right. And um, there are so many parts of this book where it was hard not to just quote the entire thing because you know we love some good data and numbers. And uh, Leah Thomas like really lays it out um, to back up this point. So the numbers are really stark and really quite awful. <laughs> um, right. 
But uh, here's a quote. Startlingly, as of 2019, race is still the number one indicator of where toxic waste facilities are located in the U.S. According to Paul Mohai, an environmental justice expert and professor at the University of Michigan, even when socioeconomic factors are similar across white and non-white communities, the community of color is still more likely to be near environmental hazards. The fight for environmental justice remains urgent, even more so as we face the climate crisis. Right. I think once again, when we have a conversation about who gets uh, good drinking water, who gets access to drinking water, drinkable water, mm-hmm. um, we know where it starts. When we talk about power outages, it's obvious who is prioritized and what is prioritized when you see grids. I think Texas had a huge uh, understanding and saw that very quickly. Of course, Texas is privatized. I, From what I'm aware, a lot of states are privatized and we just didn't know it or didn't understand it. So that's a whole different conversation in itself. Uh, but yeah, Texas became a glaring ob- like obviousness of like, hey, we know who they're prioritizing and you are not it. If you are in the low income area, you are not the one. <laughs> so it's it's an obvious line. And there are moments when in crisis, you see who is being uh, prioritized and who is seen as important uh, mm-hmm. and who is seen as dismissed or erasable. Yeah. And that's uh, throughout the book. Thomas gives examples of that as well. And, you know, when you think of terms like like Flint, Michigan or right. Katrina, it's very clear um, who is being prioritized. Right. Um, and we're moving on. It says, history often repeats itself and large civil rights and climate movements have emerged again. In 2013, following the 2012 murder of Trevon Martin, an unarmed Black teenager who was racially profiled and confronted while walking to a family friend's house, activist Alicia Garza, Patrice Cullors, and Opal Tometi created the phrase and hashtag Black Lives Matter. Their campaign grew into a global movement following the deaths of even more unarmed Black men and women killed by excessive force, galvanizing millions of protesters over the years in the largest civil rights movement of the 21st century. Land Back, a movement to reclaim everything stolen from indigenous peoples, land, language, ceremony, medicines, and kinship, is growing. Uh, The Stop Asian Hate movement, sparked by a global increase in discrimination and violence against Asian people, is gaining momentum and resulting in policy shifts such as an anti-Asian hate crimes bill. Right. So again, just all this intersectionality and why it, it all matters. And then going on, here's another quote. At the same time, a new generation of climate activists are emerging all across the globe. The Youth Strike for Climate, also known as Fridays for Future, began in 2018 after Swedish youth activist Greta Thunberg staged a protest in front of the Swedish parliament holding a sign that read, School Strike for Climate. Her actions, along with those of several other brave students, resulted in an international movement of students of various ages that demonstrated and walked out of Friday classes to demand climate action, a transition to renewable energy, and a commitment to stopping the climate crisis. By 2019, over 1 million demonstrators, primarily students across 150 countries, had participated in the protest. Right. And I'm glad we came back to her uh, in our conversation because it is a huge thing that they have Mm -hmm. created. And I love these movements. And yeah, as we even talk about in our uh, Women Around the World, we're often talking about the younger generation yeah. Really spearheading this movement. And I love it. I love it for us. I love to see that it's happening. I'm sad that it's taken this long. Um, yeah. But yeah, but both of those big movements, all these movements are really happening um, on a whole different scale. I know we can talk about social media uh, being at the front, forefront of it too. But also that these are amazing women 
and girls who are creating these movements. And we've talked about it before. It really is a, a difference when you have these level of activists ready to just stand up and have mm-hmm. a conversation. Um, and oftentimes we see that it is squashed or ignored for so long. And when you get enough people, enough attention, that you have to at least have a conversation about it, which is the smallest step that you could truly yeah. take. But as it's, it's at least beginning something. Yes, yes. And one of the other things I really loved about this book is uh, the nuance all these things were given, um, the nuance that it deserves, because I think um, a lot of times... There's like terms like wish cycling or, you know, like a lot of times we do like one good thing. We're like, ah, I'm doing this for the earth. But you really have to look into that. Like it's way more than just that. And there can be a dark side to some of these things. Right. Which we're going to talk about uh, towards the end. But before we get to that, um, we did want to talk about privilege because there's a whole chapter about that in the book. Here's a quote. We all have parts of our identities that shape how we relate to the world and how the world relates to us. The smallest things, from freckles on our faces to the tones of our voices, can influence how we're perceived by others and ultimately how they might treat us. These personal perceptions can lead to an accumulation of assumptions that become societal perceptions or biases that can be positive, neutral, or negative. Privilege is a set of unearned advantages, positive. Again, that this is just a, such a huge, important piece of like all conversations, but in this one, and when it comes to environmentalism, as we've just been talking about this whole time, it, it's you have to acknowledge it. It is so important. Right. Um, and also where you can do these things. So we talked about uh, activism after uh, the largest typhoon that happened and, and the people who were trying to really talk about, hey, this is killing our community. Not only is it killing our where we're living, but our way of life. Like fishermen who are trying yeah. to make a living, they're dying because they're getting capsized and drowning. Like mm-hmm. all of these things. And these are conversations about the way that things are built, the types of constructions that are happening, uh, all of these things. And people were being murdered for just saying it. Um, And that's what the biggest thing is like, for the upper class white citizens, that is not as huge a threat as those indigenous in our communities who have disappeared. They have Mm -hmm. disappeared in their activism. And it is still happening. There are conversations and questions where we're like, wait, we also know that a lot of indigenous activists have been actually arrested uh, and are still locked up. And there's conversations about that. So, that is a privilege. Being able to protest without being marked as in being endangered for your protest is a huge privilege. And we see that more often than not, that when they are in these marginalized communities, they are targeted in a dangerous and violent way. Mm-hmm. And that's a big part of that privilege. Mm-hmm. Let's keep talking about it because she talks about it. and We need more conversations on it. So Leah says... Social constructs are beliefs that members of society hold and assign meaning and value to. For example, a common argument is that race is a social construct. That doesn't mean that there aren't different ethnicities of people, but that assigning value and meaning to a different racial group in a society is a social construct. When people use racism as a justification for the mistreatment of other people, they are playing off a social construct that race inherently makes humans different from one another. When there is no factual or scientific basis for this. Stereotypes are born out of social constructs. Yep. I feel like that's pretty pretty self-explanatory. Mm-hmm. Which, by the way, has been weaponized against people, which is what uh, yeah. we know the white 
cis-heteronormative community are using, saying, you're, you're creating this, not us. Right. Which is a different conversation we're not going to get into, <laughs> but, you know, yeah. being aware of that as well. And she continues on, when we hold the belief that anyone can succeed if they just set their mind to it, we also give credence to the flip side of that myth that those who don't succeed aren't, quote, trying hard enough. Uh, this places the blame solely on the individuals in need rather than on the system of power supporting the barriers and disadvantages that oppress them, no matter how hard they work or try. And that's the big, like, she does such a great job in breaking that down about what that looks like. Um, that bootstrapping theory should have been dismissed so long ago. Maybe yeah. it could have worked for one point in time for the lower middle class, lower class white people that worked, mm -hmm. but that still had a system of fa favor, whether it's someone like them that pulled them up, whether it was a family member that eventually, like their networking is a whole different conversation, um, as well as that word oppressed or oppression. Someone has to be the one that gains from that. And it's typically always those in power. Right. And I just, that I think this point is so, so important because it's been part of our like national mythos for so long, that right. idea. And now it's kind of been repackaged into like, you got to hustle, you got to do that hustle, mm -hmm. you got to have your side hustle. But there are these systems in place. Like you can work as hard. I mean, you can have like three part-time jobs and not barely make a living. Like you're right. working so hard, but there are all of these things, all these obstacles and systems that are preventing you from living a happy, happy healthy life right. where you can... Yeah, we do have room to grow or uh, get right. whatever job you want or whatever life that you want. Um, yeah, it's not just like, oh, you didn't work hard enough. We're so ready to turn it around and blame right. it on people who are working so hard and like running their right. bodies into the ground. <laughs> right. And, and the level of that is that example of having a full-time job, two part-time jobs. Those things, which I was one of those people, um, and don't get me wrong, I definitely was uh, faring better than most. But the fact of the matter is, uh, I was privileged enough to know people to put me in positions to get those extra jobs, um, to make that work for myself. But on top of that, I did barely get enough to live on my own. Mm -hmm. This did not push me to be so rich. It literally was, whew wow, I can actually afford to go and be with my friends today and not have to worry about whether or not this car is going to go through, which I've had many times. Like, it's going to yeah. be declined and having that panic attack about uh -huh. being declined. And the way I'm saying this is obviously very privileged because I was single and did not have children to worry for, that I didn't have to go to a grocery store and hoping that I would it would clear to buy soup for my family and or not seeing my family or trying to figure out how to decide whether we're going to have food or daycare so I can go to these set jobs. There's so many things to this that's a whole mm -hmm. different level of conversation. Um, and for those... I know many of those who are affected by this type of uh, environmental injustices don't have time to uh, advocate for themselves because they're working <laughs> and right. can't and just right. trying to survive that way in order mm -hmm. to get those foods. So they can't be activists for themselves. So there's mm -hmm. just a whole line of conversations about who was able to be activists. And that's why we see a, probably a larger number of very privileged white people being able to do this because they mm -hmm. have the time and they have uh, extra income that they can take time off to do so. Yeah. And that's part of like the 
the cycle we need to break out of with this because, again, like going back to Leah's point, I've never seen anyone like her at these things. But yeah, it's just all, it's all connected. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank National Association, member FDIC. The state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at a historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laughing as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Here's another quote. Going back to the earlier statistic of lower funding in BIPOC schools versus primarily white schools, this funding gap also exists in community resources like parks, community gardens, and green spaces, meaning that access to these resources also varies along racial lines. Systemic housing discrimination practices like redlining, the refusal to insure mortgages in and near Black neighborhoods, have added to the climate burden by siloing communities of color in areas that are more likely to be plagued by environmental injustice. Black and Latinx people in the U.S. experience an, quote, air pollution burden in which they are exposed to 56% and 63% more pollution than is caused by their consumption, and which is linked to higher rates of cardiovascular and respiratory issues. The opposite is true for white Americans who experience a pollution advantage, which they breathe in 17% less air pollution than they cause. So that's also, yeah, a key part of this too, is that, you know, who's causing the most damage and who's the most impacted. Right. Well, that's the other part of this, because I think about the Clean Air Act. um, And one of the things that came out of the Clean Air Act was things like emission testing. Great idea. But as someone who was earning $32,000 a year, um, trying to live in Atlanta, which the cost of living is significantly higher, that has an emissions test that you have to do. And if you do not pass it, you cannot get a tag for your car and you are uh, penalized beyond mm-hmm. whatever. At one point in time, my catalytic converter went out. 
All of these things are so bad for the environment. I get the air quality, everybody should do their part, but I don't have $1,500, $1,600 to fix my car, but I have to have a car to go to my job. What do I do? Mm -hmm. There's so many things about who is really punishing more so Mm -hmm. than anyone else. And if you have a brand new car, you're fine. You're fine for the first two or three years. Who gets brand new cars? Not those who can't afford it, obviously. So there's just so many conversations about who are they actually making money off of and who is it actually going after. Um, And those are big conversations that we need to have about providing services. And then also talking about public transportation not being accessible to many a people or mm-hmm. being really dangerous because people are not really checking in on the safety and the real concerns for those who are using public transport and who has accessibility to it. Um, there's so many conversations to this. And then when we look at it and you break it down, yes, we want to definitely stop with the cars. Let's get more to public transit. But people are so opposed to it because they're like, it's going to bring in those urban people, which is very coded language, and we know yeah. exactly what they mean. Um, and so, therefore, it cuts access, but then we have more emissions. And the corporations are not even turning an eye when in one giant building, one corporation gives so much more, kills off so much more of the um, quality of air and causing more problems and pollutions, which are most likely going to be in areas that are, again, uh, lower socioeconomic living areas because people are like oh we don't want to live by this no one does but they can't afford to not live there so who has there's so many conversations to this that is completely layered about privilege um but yeah i i really the clean air act good intentions for those who can afford it yeah i mean it's another example of like clearly didn't ask uh the people who would be impacted the most and as as we said we are going to talk some more about some of the things that fall under that as well Yes. Um, And yeah, going on. In addition to environmental injustices, living sustainably can be a matter of privilege. Single-use items are more expensive and plastics is found at higher rates in communities of color. Living on a plant-based diet and eating regenerative and organically grown products is nearly impossible in a state of food apartheid, in which communities of color are more likely to be found. So when educating others about sustainability, make sure to think about intersectionality and privilege first. Refrain from shaming those who are faced with systemic barriers to living low waste and sustainably. Um, And we had a giant example of that. I think we uh, we did an ad read about paper plates. Mm -hmm. And we got a couple of emails like, hey, how dare you? This is awful for the world or whatever, whatnot. And my first response was, I get what you're saying, But for a lot of those who are working constant jobs, have three or four children, have constant usage, and this is not as accessible as you think it is. This is a cheap alternative for people trying to save time and trying to have their kids be a part of the family. So when a single mom or a single father or a single parent uh, caregiver is there, they're working two jobs and they have a 12-year-old sitting in for a couple of hours feeding each other it's not as easy as you think. Um, mm-hmm. And I say this as I would grow up uh, in an area, once again, where we didn't have recyclables. And sure, we wanted to uh, use replace and such. But when you have four kids trying to do all those dishes, caring for yourselves, trying to care for others, it's a little harder than you think. Um, mm-hmm. And don't get me wrong. Do I use paper plates? No. But am I privileged enough to have uh, just me 
myself and I as part of the thing. Yes, Mm -hmm. you may think it's not that hard, but it does build up on time. And there's this level of shaming that we really need to get away from because that doesn't do what you think it does. (laughs) No, and I think that this is such a good reminder of, again, like nothing is that clear cut. Like, right. Nothing in life is that clear-cut. <laughs> There's always right. something to consider, and especially around accessibility, because I've seen similar arguments around, sort of different but related, but around like pre-cut food, and people be like, oh, well, right. people so lazy. Like, not everybody, I guess, you know, some people can't right. cut up like time-wise, or maybe they have a disability right. or something. Like, you should just make stop. sure. <laughs> let's, let's, let's stop. And that's yeah. that whole conversation about for those who can't afford it, that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Let's not shame food shame people. It just got into the last five years when people were like, oh, food stamps are for those who really are trying to feed everyone on a budget. And I've already explained this a couple of times. To qualify for a food stamp, it's pretty difficult. And yeah. to lose it is really easy. Like I had to mm-hmm. sit and sit with my clients to try to fill these out. And I'm like, what the hell? are these forms and how quickly you can lose it is so easy. It's so Mm -hmm. easy to lose. But all of that to say, it just got to the point that it's like, oh, they don't want just milk and cheese and bread. Mm -hmm. You can't have, like, just, you can have fruit, but it costs so much that it's not cost efficient. Mm -hmm. And then people are shaming people for buying something that's not on the list and having a food stamp card. That's such an odd stance to have to have against people who have food stamps allow them to have a treat. Having ice cream, how dare you? How mm-hmm. dare you? You were on food stamps. What? Mm-hmm. Like, there are so many levels. And to the fact that finally, uh, I think in the last five years, community gardens, farmers markets have been like, oh, it would be nice to be accessible for these fresh fruits and good foods mm-hmm. and actually giving like double the value. Yes, please. Let's, let's, let's do that. That's called caring and actually doing some type of activism. Right. And and we won't get into this now, but that's also related to the fat shaming we see of, oh, well, they eat at McDonald's all the time or whatever it is. But that, again, is a lot of times an affordability. Like, what can right. I afford? A, a time thing, especially if you're working like three jobs. Um, and then we right. have the health crisis and we, as a country, seem to blame, we're ready to blame, well, that was on you. You should have right. not How just eaten you? all that all the time. Right could be only what they could get their hands on or what right. they could afford. And that's, mm-hmm. and again, I think we need to have a lot more compassion because I know there's a lot of foodie bloggers, parent bloggers that have all this privilege who do shame mm-hmm. about food and saying, don't feed this to your kids. It's yeah. really, really cute and easy. And if you're able to do that, fantastic. Go you. Um, mm-hmm. No shame to that. But this shouldn't be the narrative that you put a stance on. You really need to calm down and really think about who you're talking to and why this could be really, really damaging Mm -hmm. uh, in so many ways. Exactly. Exactly. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. 
With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly boring since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group Incorporated. PNC Bank National Association, member FDIC. Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Thomas also does a great job. She goes into the history of enslavement and disregarding the lives of Black people and how Historically, that's we're still seeing that going on and how that is involved in this conversation. Um, here's another quote. In a 2009 USC study, The Climate Gap, Inequalities and How Climate Change Hurts Americans and How to Close the Gap, researchers found that, quote, African-Americans on average emit nearly 20% less greenhouse gases than non-Hispanic whites per capita. Though less responsible for climate change, African-Americans are significantly more vulnerable to its effects than non-Hispanic whites. This is a recurring theme we'll see throughout this chapter. Those who are least responsible for the climate crisis are often the most impacted and burdened by it. So yes, again, that. Um, and then there is great numbers breakdown on how environmental injustices impact the Black, Latinx, AAPI, and Indigenous communities with notes on people with disabilities and queer folks. There's international examples. So like how the U.S. was shipping waste to other countries and how right. that impacted health sea level rise and how that impacts certain countries like way more than other countries. Um, and then, as I mentioned, um, there is these everyday examples she goes over. So one being fast fashion, um, the waste involved, the human rights violations, the cost of entry, accessibility for slow fashion. So again, like nothing is clear cut. You can't just say like, this is good or bad, but it has all of these pieces and we need to talk about right. it. Another right. one is the green energy. Um, the lack of inclusion in decision-making when it comes to indigenous people causing harm when not done with in intersectionality in mind. So yeah, again, like that sounds great, but we have to talk to the people it's going to impact. We have to involve them in it. Right. Because um, it can, There, she gives examples of when it's harmed communities. Right. Also, yeah. let's just talk about the fact that it's not affordable. Most of the time, these options are not affordable. And the companies do this on purpose. Uh, we know this. But yeah, when you, it sounds like a great idea and I want to do it. And in the end, it may save you money. But at mm -hmm. the beginning, most people can't afford it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but this is sort of what I was mentioning earlier that I feel that a lot of people like to make themselves feel better without doing the research. They're just right. like, oh, this looks good. Whether on right. a company level, because companies definitely do it too, right. or on just our own personal levels. 
All right, so she continues and writes, the global transition to green energy should not come at the expense of the safety of indigenous peoples. We urgently need to phase out our reliance on non-renewable resources and green tech should be highly prioritized as a solution. However, within an intersectional approach to environmentalism, we must acknowledge the dark side of green energy and the harm that these initiatives have caused to marginalized communities. We must also ensure that future projects take the protection of all people into considerations. We don't have to choose between justice for people and the planet. Social justice and a green economy can and should coexist. Yes. Enough said. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. And then also another kind of daily example she she went over was uh, veganism and plant-based living. And she goes over like the huge environmental impact of eating meat, increase in veganism, but again, like the lack of representation when it comes to people of color. Right. Today I had a uh, an amazing video pop up uh, from an I believe a Middle Eastern activist uh, who was talking about the fact that Western culture has kind of demonized vegan veganism in a way that or sensationalized one of the two is it's yeah. really it's according to who you talk to about veganism and using tofu as a primary example about the fact that tofu is a classic dish within uh, Asian cultures I've seen mm-hmm. it all throughout whether it's a part of Korean foods uh uh, Korean um, Indian food, but it's just an automatic part of it. Right. And it just happens to th- things like, especially Indian cu- cuisine, leans a little more to vegetarian uh, eating. And the fact that it's just their lifestyle and mm-hmm. how the Western culture has taken that and either sensationalized that to a point that it's become so expensive and over the top and or mocking it, saying it's a frou-frou food. It's such an odd stance to take that when I started thinking about it, I was like, yeah, it really is. Had I been raised in uh, Korea, it would have just been naturally a part of all of my dishes, and I would have not thought about it. As in fact, when mm-hmm. I eat these Korean dishes, I don't think about it. I just like, oh, this is good. It's just mm-hmm. a part of this dish. And coming into the U.S. cultural ideas about this, being like, this is for, oh, you're a hippie, or what are these right. things, or or you're trying to do these things. And it's seemingly mm-hmm. exotic foods, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. And that battle in itself, and being like, well, eating tofu, eating no meat uh, one day, it's not that big of a deal. Why do we make it seem like we have fallen into a, a cultural stance and or a political stance in doing so? Right. And it shouldn't be. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely been highly politicized. And I think another great reminder throughout, um, and then with this as well, is like, you know, kind of well-off white people pretending like there's no history, like they've discovered veganism. <laughs> right. Um, but there's, like you said, like cultures that this is, long been part of their history. People have been doing it forever. Um, So do your research. (laughs) Right. And again, representation is really important Mm -hmm. Um, and making sure that we understand, oh yeah, it is a cultural part of this and it's Mm -hmm. okay. And to give credit to where it came from. Exactly. A, Mm -hmm. B, also understanding not everybody can do this. Again, for Mm -hmm. still is. Fresh vegetables, for the most part, fresh fruit are expensive and they Mm -hmm. they quickly, quickly die. Quickly go bad. I'm (laughs) going to have a plan in place. (laughs) You do. Um, And that's privilege. That's privilege to know that you can get all these things. It was a privilege growing up. My parents would bring me fruit, but it had to be on sale. Um, mm-hmm. And I loved it, but also sparsing it out so I didn't just eat it all, but then also didn't wait too long. Such a mm-hmm. thing. But for mm-hmm. all these things, it is a privilege and we have to understand that. And this is why canned goods and all that came into play and why we need to talk about, once again, affordability. But go ahead. Yes, yes. Well, 
This brings us to our concluding quote. Um, So think about your special skills and apply them to the movements you care about. Even though I'm anxious and don't always feel comfortable holding a megaphone, I have found that writing and digital media are ways for me to contribute my unique skills to environmentalism. Your activism may not look like mine or like the next person's, but all of our strengths are pieces of the puzzle. A mentor of mine once said, even the revolution needs accountants. This made me laugh, but it's true. We can each contribute our skills in some way. So I'll leave you with this. I hope you understand how powerful you are. Please do share and amplify the messages you believe the world needs to hear. Take a leap of faith and attend a local protest if you can. Raise your hand to introduce an intersectional perspective where it needs to be heard. Stand up for what's right and don't back down, even when it's difficult, even when you might feel alone, because trust me, We're out there. There are generations of intersectional environmentalists in the field and a community that's ready to embrace you with support. Together, we can transform the future of environmentalism and, with collective action, spread our message across the globe and change enough hearts and minds to positively alter the future. The future is intersectional. Point blank. Yes. Yes. Um, I love that. That was the kind of inspiring... Uh, message she ends this book with. And then, as we said, there's all these really helpful resources. So I just, we can't recommend it enough. It is really, really great. Right. It's really quick read. It's informative. It has those, like we said, uh, kind of like questions to ask yourself and think about and action items, which I love um, to get involved in a responsible, intersectional, respectful way. Yes, uh, and this is why we also wanted to put this in our book club because it is a really good book club read that it is interactive and you can do discussions and she has all of the uh, added addendums to it. Um, She brings in so many activists that she knows into the book, bringing quotes and little interviews and tells you where to follow them. I followed a few and I was like, Mm -hmm. wait, I followed it. We followed a few before realizing they were all connected. I was like, look at that. Loving it. Mm -hmm. Uh, She has an amazing amount of resources. She does a great job in tapping in on the different communities, uh, really making sure that we are appreciating and acknowledging the indigenous community who have been at the forefront of this conversation because it has so directly impacted them and continues to harm them today, which we need to keep talking about forever and always. Mm -hmm. And she does an amazing job in making it seem attainable. Like these goals are attainable. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's fantastic. Um, go check it out if you haven't already. In the meantime, uh, as always, if you have a book you would like to suggest, we would love to hear it. You can email us at stuffmediamomstuff at iheartmedia.com. You can find us on Twitter at momstuffpodcast or on Instagram at stuff I've never told you. Thanks as always to our super producer, Christina. Thank you. And thanks to you for listening. Stuff I've never told you is protection of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank National Association, member FDIC. The state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. 
Whether that's live music at a historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laughing as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. 